Turn, if you would, to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, we're going to continue a passage we began to study last week. So if you're here and you didn't hear last week, so I'll try to recap it a little bit for you. But we're in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. This is a passage of Scripture where Jesus returns to his hometown of Nazareth. Now, as you're turning there, um, as I often do, got a question for the kids this morning. What is something kids in here, little kids, big kids as well, what's something you, you love to hear your parents say? Or maybe what's something that they say they're going to do or some promise they make that you love to hear them say? Anything? Like, we're going to go to Brewster's today. What, Rowan? We're going to go to the park. All right. Love to hear your parents say, yeah, we're going to go to the park, kids. Anything else you love to hear your parents tell you? Let's go to the pool. All right. So the Rosbury kids, their parents tell them good things. Any other kids in here? Yes. You get to go to what? Chipotle. All right. All right. Yes. Chipotle. All right. We get to go to some special place, do something fun, or, or maybe we get to uh, watch a family movie night or something like that. Now, it's fun to hear those things you want to hear, but uh, when I was a kid, and I'm sure it's the same, I know it's the same in Emma Kate's home. All right, sometimes though, those great words of what you want to hear are then followed by something you don't want to hear. Like, we're going to go to the park today, guys, after you finish all your schoolwork. Oh. Or, um, we're going to go have ice cream at Brewster's tonight, guys, if you'll eat all your spinach and artichokes first. Oh, come on. Oftentimes, as parents, we have to deliver not only the good news, but also some, some bad news that goes along with it. So that's the way life works. Sometimes there's things we want to hear, and then sometimes there's things we just don't want to hear. And that's exactly what happens in this passage today. Jesus is speaking to his hometown of Nazareth. He is back home. He is starting his Galilean ministry. He's already been in Galilee and then been down in Judea. A matter of fact, the, the, the synoptic gospels seem to start off with Jesus in his Galilean ministry. But if you look at John, Jesus has, had already probably been ministering up to about a year at this point. So Jesus is coming home, though, to Galilee. And he's coming to Nazareth in particular. And he's the guest preacher for that Saturday. And he's coming into a synagogue with all his family and friends and and other relatives and acquaintances, and he's preaching to them. And if you remember, as we read last week, and we'll read here in a second, that the first part of the message seems to go really good. Then all of a sudden it takes a turn for the worst, and we'll see that as well. And so last week we looked at that good news, the good things that people wanted to hear, but today we're going to look at their reaction to the things Jesus tells them that they don't want to hear. So Luke chapter 4, verse 14 is where we're going to begin. So please stand, if you would, as we read God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. We believe what 1 Peter says, that the grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And so this is very important, so we stand in honor of it. Verse 14 of Luke chapter 4. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard that you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we beg you, Lord, to teach us through this narrative account of this important event in the life of Jesus. Lord, help us to see and savor Jesus. Help us to see what it is you want us to see this morning in this text. Help us to see how deadly unbelief is. And so, God, I pray that you just speak to us through your word. Open up our ears to hear. Enable my mouth to speak. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, let me just remind you that this is part of a series that we're doing here at Harbin's called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, where we are walking verse by verse through the life of Christ. Um, we are doing this in a way that we are uh, harmonizing the Gospels. We're looking for a chronological walk through the life of Jesus. And we had been in John for a while, and now we are jumping over here to Luke. And we come to this passage of Scripture, as I already mentioned, where Jesus is coming to his hometown, and he's coming there to, to share the Gospel with them, to preach to them. And he's in their synagogue and they had heard all these things that he had been doing. They had heard about miracles in Capernaum. Perhaps they were referring to the, the healing of the official's son. Remember, we looked at that, the healing of the royal official's son. The, they're hearing these things about Jesus, and so there's great expectation. He comes into town. I'm sure the, the synagogue was packed that day. And so they're all packed in there to hear Jesus. He reads this passage of Scripture from Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2a. And then everyone's staring at him on the edge of their seat, waiting to hear what it is this Jesus is going to say, this man they've heard so much about. And his sermon was pretty short, although there's a very good chance he said more than just this, and this is a summary statement. But he says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. When he says that to the people in Capernaum, I mean in, in, in his hometown of Nazareth, he is calling himself the Messiah. They would have understood the Jewish people there, with their heightened expectation, waiting for the Messiah to come, they understood the Messianic passages. And they knew Isaiah 61, verse 1 through, well, the, first, the verses there in Isaiah 61 were Messianic passages. So they understood this to be a Messianic text. So when Jesus says this, he is 
proclaiming that he himself is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. And we looked last week at how this Isaiah 61 passage is really the messianic mission of Jesus. And we talked last week about how Jesus' mission was actually a message. The primary verb here used in Isaiah 61, these first couple of verses, is the verb proclaim. His mission was a mission of proclamation. So what was it that Jesus proclaimed? This is what we looked at last week. He proclaimed a message of good news for bankrupt sinners. A message of forgiveness for guilty sinners. A message of enlightenment for sightless sinners. A message of freedom for condemned sinners. And then at the end of that, he he proclaims that the year of the Lord's favor is upon them. This is the year of Jubilee. Now, the year of Jubilee was a once every 50 years event where debts were paid off or or canceled, I should say, and slaves were set free. And by Jesus saying that Jubilee is now here in me, he is saying that he has come to set people free of the debt of sin and to set them free from their enslavement to sin. Now, you'd think that his hometown friends and family and acquaintances would be elated with this news. And at first it seems like they are, verse 22. And all spoke well of him, and they marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. But then things went bad quickly. See, we we see in these people the same heart condition, my friends, that's reflected in the hearts of people when they hear the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 13, like I read earlier. And they hear Jesus say, repent, or you all likewise perish. Unbelieving hearts will think that's a horrible word. They don't want to hear that word. And so what we see is that these hard-hearted people don't like the message that Jesus continues to share with them. So what we have on display in today's text is really um, the anatomy of unbelief. it's, It's an example of what it looks like to not believe in Jesus. So, kind of provocatively, I have entitled today's message, Four Easy Steps to Rejecting Jesus. All right? Four easy steps to rejecting Jesus this morning. I've heard, I've seen pamphlets and different things. Four easy steps to accepting Jesus. But let me tell you what. Accepting Jesus is a work of the Holy Spirit. Rejecting Jesus is our work and it's easy. And so here we have people rejecting the Lord Jesus. So I want to look at this today. I want to look at the anatomy of rejecting Jesus. What does this look like? So I guess it's kind of reverse evangelism today. Four easy steps to rejecting Jesus. Number one, step number one. Dismiss Jesus' claims about himself by disbelieving and demonstrating contempt for his words. Dismiss Jesus' claims about himself by disbelieving and demonstrating contempt for his words. He had told them that that the messianic prophecy of Isaiah 61 was fulfilled In their hearing, he had given them a marvelous word. He was claiming in no uncertain terms that he was the Messiah. In their hearing, this prophetic word of deliverance had been had been had been spoken to them, and he and had been fulfilled in the man standing in front of them. What a word, what a declaration, what a proclamation, what a claim. I mean, this is what they were supposed to be waiting for, looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And at first, like I said, it does seem that they, 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 they accept it sort of, sort of well. It says that they marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. 
gracious words. There could have been no more magnificent words to listen to than the words that Jesus was speaking on that day. The words that come from the mouth of Jesus. The gospel writers frequently refer to Jesus' words as, as having power. As people being amazed at his teaching. The, 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 the gospel writers speak frequently of there being authority in Jesus' words. Remember, it's the words of Jesus that caused the sea to be still and the winds to stop. His words made demons shudder. What amazing and powerful words the words of Christ were and are. When I was in college, I, I, um, well, I mastered my, 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 my major in communication, in mass communication, but I had to take some classes on, on just communication theory. And one of the classes I took was a class called Rhetoric. And uh, you look at the, and, and you basically all semester long, we simply look at different famous speeches. And you look at the, the power of words. And you look at famous politicians like, George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln in particular was powerful with his words. And so we studied rhetoric. And it's funny, they, those were all positive. They gave us a negative example of negative rhetoric in my class. And this was at Baptist College, Hardin-Simmons University, Abilene, Texas. Go Cowboys. The negative example was Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Of negative and manipulative rhetoric is what they said. I was stunned. All my liberal classmates were thrilled. But these are gracious words that Jesus said. No oratory, no rhetoric could have been more powerful than what Jesus is saying. More beautiful, more stunning. And the people marveled, but then unbelief began to creep in. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Isn't this Joe's boy? Isn't his mother Mary? Wasn't his, wasn't his birth a little questionable? Don't we know this family well? He can't be the Messiah. I know he's saying some pretty amazing, and the words that he's speaking are stunning, but no way. He, he can't be who he says he is. Matthew tells us in the parallel account in Matthew 13, and I do believe that's the parallel account. Some people believe Jesus went back to the synagogue again about a year later and was rejected again in Nazareth. But I believe these are parallel accounts. In Matthew 13, here's how Matthew records it. The people are saying, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters here with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And then he goes on to say, and they took offense at him. They were offended by his words. When you begin to question who Jesus is, you begin to question his word. And guess what? His word becomes offensive to you. No matter how gracious and glorious it actually is. I think we find the same things in our Christian walk, right? You try to share the gospel with people. You're trying to share glorious words, good news. And they look at you and they think you're speaking hate to them because they're offended because they don't believe in these words. And their conscience is bearing witness to the fact that they're sinners, but they don't want to believe. They don't want to hear you say that. So Jesus is speaking gracious words to them, but they took offense Unbelief generates offense. Is this not Joseph's son? Now the son in those days 
followed the career path passed on to him from the father. So the son's identity, social status, and destiny was bound up in, in who their father was. So the people begin to have disdain for Jesus. Who is he? He's just the carpenter's boy. Who does he think he is to speak these type of things to us? What they didn't see, what they refused to see, that he was not just one of Joseph's sons. He was God's only son. And thus his true identity and status and destiny were bound up in his sonship. The son of God. My friends, I go off on this little tangent every now and then when I get to a passage of Scripture where we talk about the Son of God. Sonship language is huge in the New Testament. It is not to be discarded. Jesus' role as Son, as heir, has huge implications for the gospel. If we don't recognize him as the Son of God, then we are gutting the gospel of its truth. Let me say this, if I may dare say, if you are believing or teaching that the sonship of Jesus is of secondary importance, if you are teaching people that Jesus is not necessarily the Son of God, if you dismiss the sonship language of Scripture or encourage others to, then what you're doing is the same thing the people in Nazareth are doing. You're disdaining the Word of Christ. You're, you, don't, you can't stand who He says He is in Scripture because it's too offensive to certain people. Your issue isn't with how to communicate to people carefully about Jesus because there's this missiological method out there to try to encourage people to to minister to Muslims and not mention that Jesus is the Son of God. Your issue isn't with communication styles. Your issue is with the Word of God. You are dismissing the Word of God, showing disdain towards Jesus, and you are generating unbelief, not belief. The claims of Jesus about himself were offensive to the Jews. They're offensive to our world today. Don't try to make it less offensive than it is. The offense is there for a reason. The gospel is offensive for a reason. Some receive it and are saved. Some reject it and are hardened for God's judgment purposes. And we can't see into the mind of God. We just preach the gospel with all of its offense and let God do what he does. We don't try to alter it and shift it and make it more palatable so that more people will accept it. We preach it as it is. And people will either believe or they will reject it. And it's God's prerogative to do with them whatever he'll do. People want to think a lot of things about Jesus. He was a good man. He was a good teacher, a good philosopher, a good example. My friends, he was good, but he's also God. People want to think a lot of things about Jesus so long as it's not what Jesus says about himself. The dismissal of the claims of Jesus about himself. So he's sitting here claiming Messiah, that he is the Messiah. The dismissal of Jesus' claims about himself led them to no longer hear his gracious words. So now Jesus begins to give them what they don't want to hear. So back to our illustration. It's been gracious words up to now, and now he's about to give them what they do not want to hear. And it's, well, namely, a, a pretty serious rebuke. And so it's in this rebuke that I want us to see As Jesus rebukes his fellow Nazarenes, I want us to see the other elements here of rejecting Jesus. So the second easy step to rejecting Jesus is number two. Here we go. Dismiss Jesus' mission by demanding he do something for you to prove himself to you. 
dismiss Jesus' mission by demanding he do something for you to prove himself to you. Now, Jesus knows their heart. He knows that unbelief has crept in. They don't believe that Joe's boy can can be the long-awaited Messiah from God. And so he, peering into their intentions and their thoughts, says this. Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. So basically this proverb that he quotes, which apparently was a well-used, well-known proverb of the time, simply means prove it. Physician, heal yourself. Prove it. Prove yourself. Show us. And that's what flows out of a heart of unbelief. And how did they want him to prove it? Well, they wanted to prove it with signs and miracles. Today, people want Jesus to prove it in a thousand other ways. Maybe not by signs and miracles, but Jesus, so long as you do this in my life and fix this situation in my life, I'll believe. If you'll just prove who you say you are, then I'll, then I'll accept you. I'll believe. They say this, or Jesus, knowing what they're thinking, says, What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Now, like I said, perhaps he's referring to the healing of the royal official's son. We also know, looking earlier in this chapter, in verse 15, that he was, he was uh, doing works throughout the region. So we don't know what exactly they're talking about here. But we know that they want to see him prove himself by doing some magic tricks. Come, Jesus, do some healings here. Do some miracles. Do some cool stuff. We've already seen in our series... As we've been going through this early part of Jesus' ministry, we've seen how predominant that, that line of thought is. People will believe in Jesus so long as he does stuff for them that they want to see done. I mean, this sounds just like John chapter 2, verses 23 through 24. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. You get to the end of that verse and you say, Great! Look at all these people believing in Jesus' name. But then it goes on and says, But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and no one, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He could see into their hearts, and he knew their faith was simply a sign-dependent faith. And that's what we have going on in Nazareth as well. We'll believe you so long as you do some stuff. Come on, Jesus, do some magic. Put on a show, then we'll believe. No, they won't. Friends, let me say this very clearly. No one ever comes to Jesus as a result of miracles. As a result of seeing miracles, I should say. Because new birth is a miracle. But as a result of seeing miracles. Can God use miracles to get one's attention? Yes. But the only reason anyone comes to Jesus is the work of the Holy Spirit. And the only way anyone receives Jesus is to put their faith in Him. Not in His miracles. In Him. Miracles are not enough to make one believe. Luke 16, 31 makes it very clear. Not even the miracle of a person being raised from the dead was enough to make people believe. These people are no different than many who go to the church today. Some people do go to church for miracles. I would say that most of what you see on the TV are false signs and wonders. But many people go to church for other reasons, and sadly, many of those who come to our churches and sit in our pews are still seeking Jesus, trying to get something. Maybe not a miracle, but something. Something. Something Jesus has to do for them to prove himself to them or to earn their worship. Most people come to church trying to see if Jesus can earn their worship. Well, Jesus, if you'll just fix this issue in my life, and I'll believe, I'll worship you. 
Now, we've talked about this recently in other sermons, so I don't want to belabor the point today, but I simply want to warn myself and you that, and anyone listening to this sermon that Jesus is not some spiritual genie who, if we just rub him in the right way and say the right prayers with the right amount of worship, will give us what we want, and then we'll give him our heart. Friends, the greater work, the greater miracle that Jesus is doing is that he, across this vast planet, is taking sinful, hard, rebellious hearts and making them new hearts that love and worship him. That's the greatest miracle in the world. Is Jesus taking hardened sinners and making them worshipers. You may be here this morning, you've never witnessed a miracle. Most of y'all haven't witnessed a miracle. Most of us haven't witnessed any sort of spectacular miracle. Or maybe you're sitting here this morning and you've never, never witnessed Jesus doing something spectacular in your life. Maybe not a miracle, but just rearranging things or doing something spectacular where you can, all you can do is say, wow, Jesus did that. Maybe you have or maybe you haven't experienced that. But my friends, if you have had the privilege of seeing someone come to Christ, then friends, you have seen the greatest miracle and sign that you ever need to see. You've seen a sign of who he is, that he is Savior and Lord. I'm reminded of the, of the Way of the Master videos. On, on one of the videos there, Kirk Cameron's getting into a bit of a heated discussion there. Well, he's not getting heated, but the other people are with this, 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 um, this gang members. And one of them in particular puts his hand across Kurt's chest when Kurt says something about what Jesus said. And he goes, he said, Jesus didn't say that. He, he's doing the same thing these Nazarenes are doing. That, you don't want to hear that word. Jesus didn't say that. He gets angry with Kurt. Now the, the conversation goes on. Kurt has a great opportunity to share the gospel with these guys and they leave. Now on the youth study, the new youth study for Way of the Master of the Roots, they tell the story that they're out evangelizing later. I don't know how many years later. Peter, maybe you know. Years later, they're out evangelizing. They see this guy out of the corner of their eye, and he looks familiar to them. He's got a Bible in his hands. And then they recognize him. He's one of the gang members. And they go up and they talk to him. They actually get it on video of him giving his testimony of what the Lord did in him. He was the one who threw his hand against Kirk's chest and said, Jesus didn't say that. Now, that man wasn't converted on the spot or anything else, but now that man is out with his Bible sharing the gospel with other people. That's the miracle. Do you need a sign to know that Jesus is real? Look at that miracle. That's the sign. I'm reminded of this passage. Again, the parallel to this passage. Let's go to Mark chapter 6. If you want to go there, you can. I'm going to go ahead and read it. Mark chapter 6. It says, he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. So this is the same story. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done in his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Now, I want you to pay attention here. Verse 4. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his, own, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his household. In verse 6. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. What does that tell us about what Jesus sees as the mighty works? 
It's not the laying on the hands of sick people. The mighty work are people, hardened sinners like those in Nazareth, Nazareth coming to Christ. That's the mighty work, and he didn't do that mighty work in Nazareth because of their hard heart, their unbelief. So the mighty works of God are not the miracles and the show, friends. The mighty works of God is when a hardened sinner becomes a worshiper of the one true God through Jesus Christ. That's the mighty work of God. So rejection of Jesus comes when one dismisses his mission, which, as I reminded you earlier, was to preach good news to the spiritually poor, preach freedom to the spiritually captive, preach sight to the spiritually blind, and set, the free, set free the spiritually oppressed. But instead, but instead sees Jesus as some sort of genie who has to prove his power by doing something for them. But we also see the next step. So step number three in your four steps of how to reject Jesus, number three. Dismiss your own sinfulness by displaying an arrogant spirit of entitlement. Dismiss your own sinfulness by displaying an arrogant spirit of entitlement. Now, Jesus is going to give them a little heavenly history lesson this morning. Or, I don't know what this is morning. Whenever he's meeting with them. And in this lesson, we see that Jesus is going to be rebuking them for not seeing their own spiritual destitution. And instead displaying an arrogant, prideful, ethnocentric spirit of entitlement. They basically think that we deserve God's grace. Maybe you're here this morning. You think that I've done something to merit God's grace. I want you to listen closely. First thing Jesus does is bring them to their attention to a story from 1 Kings chapter 17. He summarizes it. We'll begin in verse 25 here. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three and six months, three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Now, we don't have time to go back to 1 Kings 17 today and read this whole story. So I want to just give you a quick synopsis here of what was happening in 1 Kings. The, the, the people in the synagogue would have understood the story very well. First of all, there was rampant idolatry in Israel. It was the worst time in Israel's history. Who was king and queen during, uh, during Elijah's ministry here? Anybody? Kids? Me? Ahab? And was that Rowan? Rowan? I can always expect a good answer from you. Ahab and Jezebel. Okay, you don't get much worse than Ahab and Jezebel. It's the worst time in, his, in Israel's history. The people were worshiping Baal. There were very few true followers of God in Israel. God was judging the land, judging his people by sending famine upon them. God sends his prophet, okay, not to one of the widows in Israel who was suffering from this famine, but to a Gentile widow in Sidon. Now, Sidon was a territory on the north coast of Israel, and Zarephath was a city in that region. Zarephath was the city, by the way, where Jezebel's father came from. Jezebel's father's name was Ethbal, which means Baal lives. He was a priest of Baal. So basically, this is the center of Baal worship. And God sends his prophet there instead of Israel. What does that tell you about the state of Israel? God sends his prophet to this city, to this woman. But she was a believer. When, when Elijah begins to talk to her, she says, The Lord your God lives. Elijah sees her and asks for some water uh, and then asks for some bread. And she tells him that she only has enough oil and flour to make a little bit of bread for her and her son. That was going to be their last meal. They were going to eat that and die. Elijah says, no, I, I want you to, to give it to me. 
I want you to make this bread for me, and the Lord will provide for you. The Lord will take care of you. And so what does she do? She believes and she obeys the prophetic word of the Lord, and God does provide for her miraculously. Notice that her belief and obedience came before the miracle. Unlike these Nazarenes, she didn't ask Elijah to prove himself. Oh, come on, really? All of God has left. Show me some sort of sign here, Mr. Man of God, that will demonstrate that what you're going to say is going to come true. She doesn't do that. She simply hears the word and obeys the word. Hears the word and obeys the word. Now, by telling them this story, Jesus is showing them that they, have, that they, they are in the sin of unbelief. And he's, he's identifying them as the idolatrous people of Israel. <laughs> he's telling them, you are like the idolatrous people of Ahab and Jezebel's time. Okay? And uh, he's also um, telling them that, that God is opening up the floodgates here. And no longer are you Jews to view this salvation as something simply for the Jews. That just as he did in the Old Testament, God has a plan to reach people from everywhere, including a little old widow from Zarephath. Now, the second story that Jesus tells him, if the first, you know, Jesus pulls out the sword of the Spirit, he's preaching. Why do we preach expository sermons? Because Jesus did. Now, so he pulls out his sword. If the first lunge didn't get him, he's going to get him with the second lunge from the Old Testament. And this one is from 2 Kings 5. Verse 27 here, Jesus speaking in this passage says, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. Now surely you know this story, but if you don't, here are the cliff notes. Syria was the enemy of Israel. They often raided Israel. They would come in, they would steal their land, steal their possessions, steal their flocks, steal their people. And one of the generals who surely had led some of those raids was a guy by the name of Naaman. He was a Gentile dog, an idolater. Worse than that, though, he was an unclean Gentile dog. He was a leper. Apparently, one of his, on one of his raids, they had taken a young Israelite girl back with them as a slave. So he sounds like a nice guy, doesn't he? Really deserving of God's grace, isn't he? He's a man-stealer. He steals this young lady, becomes his slave, well, as his leprosy began to ravage his body, the young girl tells him that in Israel there was a prophet who could heal him. So he's at the end of his rope. He assumes that such an important prophet must be at the king's palace. So he goes to the king's palace. The prophet wasn't to be found there. Elisha hears of it, sends for Naaman. Naaman comes to him. But, the, but Elisha doesn't even go out and see Naaman. Instead, he sends him a word. He's a prophet. This is the Lord's word. He tells him to go bathe in the Jordan seven times and he'll be healed. Now... Naaman doesn't like this. If you recall, Naaman does not like this one bit. And it, I'm going to go ahead and read for you what it says in 2 Kings 5, verse 11. It says, But Naaman was angry, and he went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of his God, the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. What was Naaman wanting? He was wanting the magic show. I thought surely he was going to come out and wave his hands and do something. He didn't want just a simple word from the Lord. He wanted a show. How many people today come and they don't just come for the word of the Lord. They come for Jesus to do something. Wave your hands, Jesus. Fix my marriage. Fix my finances. Do something. No, come to this place to hear the word of the Lord spoken. And that's it. 
And then let the word do what it does. However God chooses to use it. So he comes. He's, he's upset now. He changes his mind. Uh, one of his servants convinces him to, to go back. And you know what? At least you can give this a try. And I think we can assume that, that Naaman's at the end of his rope here. And he, he reconsiders and he decides to go and obey the word of the Lord. He goes and obeys the word of God. He dips himself in the Jordan River seven times and he is healed. Now, unlike these Nazarenes, he didn't ask Elisha to prove that he could do what he said he was going to do. Instead, he simply heard the word of the Lord and after initially hesitating, he obeyed it. He just went and obeyed the word of the Lord. So again, Jesus is rebuking them for their sign-dependent faith, for their unbelief. And he's knocking them off of their prideful pedestal of self-exaltation and self-reliance based upon the fact that they were Jews. They hated the fact that God chose to save a lowly Gentile widow and an enemy general like Naaman. They especially hated the story of Naaman. I'll tell you why. They would have viewed Naaman just like they viewed those Roman soldiers that were standing around in their town as oppressors. And they believed the Messiah was coming to kick out those guys. Remember I told you that Jesus only quoted the first half of verse 2 from Isaiah 61? Told you that last week. I told you it was important. I told you to come back this week if you want to find out why. Well, here you go. He only quoted the first. Now, let me say this, though. There weren't the Bible verse distinctions in the, in the scriptures there and in, in, in the numbers for each chapter. But at the same time, verse 2 is a complete phrase, and Jesus leaves off half of it. So here it's the whole thing. Isaiah 61, verse 2. This is one of the reasons the Messiah has come. Verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We talked about that. That's the year of Jubilee. And the day of vengeance of our God. This omission would not have gone unnoticed by them. You see, they wanted their vengeance. They wanted their vengeance. But God had shown mercy. God has shown mercy to Naaman. And by relating this story to them, now Jesus too is saying that God is showing mercy even upon the Gentiles. And this was appalling to them. They wanted their vengeance. We want our Messiah and our vengeance too. This was appalling to them. But see, Jesus was coming with a gracious word. Today was the favorable time. The day of salvation, the day of vengeance is coming Not here yet, but the Jews wanted their Messiah to come with the sword, with vengeance. But Jesus, in one sermon, rebukes their lack of faith, and he destroys their ethnocentric biases. God is no respecter of persons. He will save whom he wills. The heritage of these Jews in Nazareth in no way assured them of receiving God's favor or forgiveness. They, like the widow and like Naaman, must see that in order for them to experience the mercy of God, they had to recognize their spiritual destitution, their total unworthiness, their sinful state, and repent. Then they would be saved. For God desires that none should perish. He's willing and able to save anyone, anyone from any tribe, from any nation, with any background, with any baggage. He delights to save lost sinners if they will turn to him and repent. And he saves those who, by God's grace, recognize their lostness and turn from their sin and submit to him in faith. Now let me just say this. You you might be saying this morning, well, I'm not Jewish and I don't have any of these Jewish entanglements with ethnocentric biases. But there are other ways we demonstrate our prideful spirit of entitlement. 
Perhaps you assume that you're a Christian simply because you grew up in a Christian family or you have a certain type of church membership or whatever it might be. If there's any foundation that you're building your hope on that is not simply and solely the shed blood of Christ, then you are acting in a spiritually proud way and you're assuming that you are owed something by God. If you're not standing solely on the blood of Christ, you are acting in, spiritual, in a spirit of entitlement because you think that God owes you something for who you are or what you've done or how you've done it. Of course, legalism and works-based faith is also turning Christianity into a transaction where if we do a good, enough good stuff for God, he in turn blesses us. And that same arrogance and foolish spirit of entitlement is seen in, in Christians who go around saying, if you just have enough faith, well, then good stuff's going to happen to you. You'll get what you need. That's stupidity, foolishness, spirit of entitlement. You cannot barter with God. God is God. If he blesses you, you praise him while he's blessing you. And if he gives you a period of dry famine, you praise him in that period of dry famine because he's God. He doesn't owe you anything. My friends, if you want what you're owed, then you would be in hell. Needless to say, Jesus' words to these folks kind of set them off a little bit. How dare he compare us to sinners It's amazing how angry people will get when they're called sinners. How dare he? How dare he say that a lowly widow and a foreigner at that is more worthy of God's mercy than we are? How dare he he use an example of that dirty Gentile general, an enemy of Israel? How dare he say he's worthy of God's mercy and we're not? Who does he think he is? Who does this son of Joseph think he is? Which leads me to the last point. Point four on how to reject Jesus. Well, dismiss Jesus' loving rebuke by doing all you can to get rid of his influence in your life. This was a loving rebuke. My friends, the words from Jesus in Luke chapter 13 are a loving rebuke to a world that's just desperate in need of salvation. We think those are harsh words. They are harsh. My friends, Jesus' sword heals at the same time it cuts. Verse 28, when they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill in which their town was built so they could throw him off the cliff. They're quite angry. They're basically declaring that he's a false prophet by trying to stone him. That's what they're doing here. A lot of the the, um, evidence from New Testament times says that the way they did stonings was to throw someone off a cliff and then drop large rocks on them. So you'd throw them off the cliff, it would break their legs, then you'd drop rocks on them. So that's perhaps what they're trying to do here. There was apparently some sort of cliff nearby. Regardless of what they were planning to do, it wasn't good. They were trying to kill Jesus. Again, have you ever noticed how violent people get with their words and their actions when they're confronted with the word of God and when their sin is exposed? People get violent. They get very ugly. And they become blind to their own unreasonableness and ugliness. What a quick turn of events. But we read here in verse 30. But passing through their midst, he went away. Somehow he miraculously escapes. They're holding Jesus. They're coming over to the cliff. All right, yeah. They turn around. Where's Jesus? Where'd he go? Well, the men in the synagogue got their miracle, didn't they? After they were angry. After they had already rejected the Lord. 
This final episode simply demonstrates the absolute authority of Jesus. He runs the show, not men. John 10, 17, for this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me. That was weird, guys. No one takes it from me. I'm hearing heavenly music as I'm saying this last thing here. What's going on? I was trying to end on a more serious note, but let's read this. John 10, 17, again. For this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life that I might take it up again. Listen to this. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. These guys aren't going to throw him off a cliff. They didn't have the authority to throw him off a cliff. And the only reason Pilate could stand there and pronounce a sentence over Jesus is because Jesus told Pilate, you can only do this because my father is giving you the permission to do this. Jesus runs the show, not men. So that's it. That's our four simple steps to rejecting Jesus. Of course, I pray that you will do none of these, but instead that you'll embrace Jesus for who he claims to be, that you'll take him at his word, that you'll hear his word, let him expose your sin, and then let him heal you with the gospel. Recognize your spiritual destitution and turn to him alone for salvation. That's what I beg for you to do this morning. Unless you repent, friends, you will all likewise perish. That's Jesus' word for us today. So if you're a sinner here this morning who has never bowed your knee and submitted your life to Christ as Lord and Savior, I beg you to do so this morning. Please bow your heads and close your eyes, and let's close with a word of prayer and one final song. Lord Jesus, we praise you for who you are. We want to see and savor you as we go through these texts And we end this text today by just seeing your absolute authority. God, we don't understand, Jesus, all your purposes and why you do what you do. You knew going in there you were going to be rejected. Jesus, as we each in here experience different levels of rejection because of our faith, I can only imagine how emotionally wrenching it was for you. When I get called a bad name or someone rejects the gospel I'm trying to share with them or whatever it might be, my feelings get hurt. And I feel kind of down for a little bit. But this, Jesus, these were your own family members, friends, boyhood acquaintances. And they hated you. So let us never go through this life saying, woe is me. No matter how much we're rejected, whether we're sharing the gospel, whether we're just facing the hostility of family members or friends or co-workers, no matter what we're going through, we know that we have a Savior who can identify with us, who became like us in every respect, but without sin. Because my responses to those who are being ugly to me is oftentimes tainted with sin. So Jesus, praise you for who you are. You had a perfect capacity to love these people with a genuine love, yet also speak to them a word that ultimately became a word of judgment to them. So Jesus, you you run the show, not us. So this morning we acknowledge you run the show. I don't know in this room, there's a good number of people here this morning. I don't know the hearts of the people in this room. You do, Jesus. You run the show. 
My words aren't going to convince someone to, to come and believe in Jesus, to accept you as Lord and Savior. You run the show. You have to work on that heart before it can happen. So Jesus, have your freedom to work by your spirit however you see fit during this closing time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.